This morning we're continuing with the idea of looking at, at, at Proverbs, and obviously not just Proverbs, but uh, the idea of wisdom and coming from the Scripture, and Proverbs is considered one of the areas of wisdom books. I find it interesting, and, and, and we need to, to make that, this comment at some point along the way here, you, the, the author of, of Proverbs primarily, there are a couple of, of outsiders in there, but the primarily is, a, is, is, is Solomon. And we, we look at his, his life and we read these things and we're thinking, if he had only paid attention to all of this. But we have to understand that God did give him great wisdom and within the framework of that, he lost sight of the, the, the power of it to, to, to govern and you know, direct his path. And so he writes with extreme knowledge. And I think that's a, an interesting thing to look at. He knows what it is when it doesn't work right. And so uh, somebody was, was mentioning to me the other day that, it was, that there was kind of an irony that, that we would look at him as, and look at all of these things in reference to adultery and things like that and the things that went through his life. As, as while he was king, and the reality is that uh, we see how God uses everything in the sense of bringing about His purpose. I have learned a long time ago: God does not waste anything. Even our worst experiences, God causes to become something fruitful at some point, at some time, that we might minister possibly to someone else and help them while they're going either through the same things that we messed up or help them to keep from ever going there. And that was the intent of the Proverbs. You see, you know, Solomon is writing, my son, I, listen carefully. Listen to what I'm saying. I have important things to say to you. So just keep that in mind as, as we go through this and, and realizing that, that uh, uh, God does, if, if, if we read through these things and you might turn around and say, or you're listening to the message and you're thinking, well, I blew it there. I blew it there. The reality is, is that God is the is the has the, the is the master repairer, if you will. Uh, and when we come to Him and confess our sins, He forgives us. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and restores us. And so, uh, he, none of us can come through this and and turn around and say, "Oh, well, this this doesn't apply to me." Uh, we all find ourselves at some point in the in the seat of, of conviction here. What we're talking about today initially was going to be a single topic, marriage and parenting, and uh, realizing that there was no way you would accomplish uh, any comprehensive sermon on marriage and parenting in, in, two, in one single service, let alone two. And so uh, we're just going to focus on marriage today. Uh, last week, and it's important to, do, to look at last week's message as we go into this, because uh, last week, VJ uh, sharing on uh, practicing wisdom in reference to sex and sexuality. And he said something, uh, you know, uh, again, that I thought was very interesting. He says, and maybe some of you wrote this down or remember him saying it anyway, God is pro-body. And what that means is, is that sexuality uh, and, and the idea of, of, of relationship and, and sexual relationship with a husband and wife, God created us for this. And so there's, there is to be great pleasure, there's to be great joy, and God, God orchestrated it. 
And so we, we tend to be somewhat prudish about it. It's difficult to talk about it, especially standing in the pulpit in the church. And, and I thought BJ did an outstanding job last week. And so uh, it's a difficult subject, and, and he did well. Uh, but, it, you know, very clearly, you know, going back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, as we look at this, uh, what the Word says in reference to our creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 uh, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, them, meaning man was going to be plural. It was a generic name, basically, at this point. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In His image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, chapter 2 turns around and focuses in more detail on the aspect of, of, of the creation of man and, and woman. And so we pick up in, in chapter 2. Uh, I'm just going to read a few of the verses, starting with verse 7. For then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. By the way, this is the only place where we see that God breathed into the creature. This is a special relationship that's being established here for us between God and us. We are a unique part of his creation. And, and the only thing created in his image. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we have Adam created. He's in this garden. And it says that uh, uh, verse 15 of chapter 2, the, the Lord God uh, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there was one thing, and of course we're familiar with this, but one thing that God created that, that, that was to not be touched by man. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. By the way, and I, I, I know some people look at this differently uh, at different points, but to me this speaks to the, the, the fact that man began intelligent. This isn't something that evolved over time. 
man was intelligent from the beginning. He looked at something and was able to look at it and comprehend it and see it and actually give it a name that had something to do with its character and its ability and uh, to do things. And so it's, and the creature's name was what it was given and was what it was. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, Wow, no. Uh, and the man said, This is at last a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So we have this this picture of creation of man and woman in detail. One to complete the other. Uh, some of you are familiar with the word complementarianism. Okay, to complement the other. And that's not C-O-M-P-L-I, it's P-L-E. To complement means to complete. Uh, and, and so to complete each other. One alone is, is truly alone. Two together can make a, makes a complete picture. And that's what God intended. And, and then we see that the very clearly what He's ordained, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, a man shall leave his father. So, obviously, now he's being prophetic, speaking for the future of all all mankind. Man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we have verses in chapter 3, Genesis 3, enters the serpent, Satan, the lie that that Satan brings to it, surely you shall not die, and, and all of the things that go with it. I'm not going to go into that this morning. But what happened was that sin came into the world and it broke the system. It corrupted the system. Sex included. Now remember, as we've started in looking at the book of Proverbs, Wisdom is, is the idea of being in reverence of God, in awe of God, in fear of God. And I just put it here, wisdom is the, is the seeking God part. Okay? And, and the opposite in Proverbs, and it's over and over and over again as well, is the idea of folly. And folly is the side that ignores God, does not have a reverence for God. And we are told to be wise. That the fear of the Lord is, is, is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if we start with God, we'll come to the best understanding of, of creation, world, people, everything. The beginning of wisdom begins with God. What would have come naturally to Adam and Eve as they matured and, and, and grew together and as they started to, to, to fill the earth, the godliness, the righteousness, now requires instruction. What I believe would have come naturally now requires instruction. You, 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 everything is corrupted and, and everything is, is messed up and now I have to tell you 
step by step what the kinds of things that need to be done in order to bring us back into a relationship with God that is righteous and holy. He even talks about, very specifically, it's the husband and wife family relationships with God and with each other. So, I'm going to present to you, I hope this morning, a view of marriage from a Christian review. Uh, I wrote here in the top of my notes, greatly oversimplified. Um, Because, again, there's no way that you could spend weeks talking about this every day and not cover it. So I'm just going to give you an overview. And to do this, I feel it's necessary to start with where actually the world is first. Because the world is what probably is what we see more than anything else around us. And the world view, going back to Proverbs, is folly. What is folly? The absence of seeking after God. It's the absence of the fear of God. I asked uh, in a general context for a definition of marriage, uh, and I and I I went online just and, and plugged it in just for the fun of it, and I and I got a number of different ideas. Obviously, uh, the internet is interesting, but don't don't look to it for your source of fact. <laughs> Again, where do you start? Please start here. <laughs> don't, you know, this is the internet is just full of people's opinions, and the bulk of them are of the world, not of God. Okay. Uh, but as a, as a place to check things out as to what's going on and, and see how the world thinks, it's, it's, a, it's, uh, it's there. Two consenting adults entering into a legal contract with each other as authorized by the state. I, I, that's basically a definition of marriage today, if you want. And, and basically, that, the reality, and it's been for a long time, and in the Western culture, two people can go to a courthouse, get married at the courthouse on the day that they go in. And some states require a two to three day waiting period. Others, you know, different things. But basically, you go to the courthouse, you can get you can get married, and it's just basically by a justice of the peace. There's no uh, religious significance to it at all. It's simply a what one would call a secular ceremony. Do you? I do. Okay. And you sign the paperwork and you are now legally married. So this, this definition, two consenting adults entering into a legal contract with each other as authorized by the state. And the state does consider it a legal contract. If the contract is voided at some point in time down the line, uh, normally we look at the, 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 the term by divorce, uh, then there's a there's a, a uh, solving of the problem of, of, of property by a, a court or a, a mediator, and they determine how they divide up this contract property that you've accumulated together. So it's it's a very systematic, big secular type thing. You don't have to have any religious faith or belief to get married. Now, it's interesting because after being in, in, a, in a community for uh, over 30 years and, and pastoring in one capacity or another over 30 years here, uh, 
people hear your name or they've been to weddings that you've done and, and you know, after a while, you, you know, and I'll get a phone call and say, uh, we're looking for a pastor to do our wedding. And my first question, if there's somebody that's not, that I know or I don't know, under, you know, know who they are or anything, I'll say, do you want a Christian wedding? And it's not uncommon to hear nothing from the other side for a moment because they're not sure what to say. And, and I said, well, basically, you know, are you believers? Do you want the, you know, and, and go through it. And most of the weddings I turned down. And the, and the reason is, is that, that, that they're look, just, just looking to get married. They, they need somebody to officially sign the contract to make it legal. I want to offer more than that. Now, will I marry two, uh, two non-believers? Yeah, I will. Uh, and and if, they're, if they're willing to go through a counseling time and with it and everything, and, it, and I've had opportunity at least to share the Lord, plant seeds, this type of thing, I'm not opposed to that. And then show them why we're doing a Christian wedding, where the, the things come. I, it's, it's a great opportunity. But if they don't want that, I, I, I figure I, my ordination says minister of the gospel. That's the title on my ordination, minister of the gospel. Uh, so if I if I do anything short of that, I'm I'm falling short of my agreement as to what that ordination was all about, and what God has called me to do. So what I'm trying to say is is that it's interesting to have people looking for pastors to do their wedding, but they don't want a Christian wedding, but they 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 want kind of that setting. Possibly I've, I've had some of them because they are trying to appease uh, family at some point or another. Uh, whatever, or they just they have this back, back of the back of their mind is the you know the pastor up there with the fancy outside outside or church wedding this type of thing, even though it means nothing. And so the world has this opinion in general. Our culture holds a very secular view of marriage, and it doesn't hold it very high. And I saw uh, one person that was commenting on this. I I, I stole some information from him because he called it a consumer relationship. I thought that was an interesting term. Consumer relationship. Subject to cultural change. Interesting picture. Consumer relationship subject to cultural change. Such a relationship lasts as long as the vendor. Now, I know this is in commercial terms. The vendor, you know, as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. Now, if anybody that's done business, owned a, a shop or, or, or a, a business outlet, they, what you do is the vendor is the one who supplies the goods to you. And you, you look for the best what? Best buy you can get. And this vendor's been supplying you for a, a lengthy period of time, and and it's been everything's been fine until another salesman comes in, and offers you a better deal on a a equal to or better than product. Now the reason why I'm so familiar with this was that was my job working for Fuller O'Brien. I was uh, when I was working for Fuller Paints, I my territory was from uh, Roseville to Weed. In the, in the central valley, in the valley over there, and up in the foothills on both sides. And uh, my job was to call on people who already were selling paint. 
one brand or another. And the idea was to go in there and say why my brand was better. And I had an equal to or better than product at a great price. And if I looked on the door and I could see a particular name or something like that, I would know there's no point in going in there. I can't beat that guy's price. You know, but, you know, it was, that was the way. I was trying to be the vendor coming in with a better product. And so it was interesting for me. That's why the article caught my attention. Consumer relationships subject to change, uh, cultural change based on what the vendor supplies. Uh, and and, and uh, an, another vendor offers a better deal. And the general attitude is, you know, is, oh, with a better deal comes along, I go with that. And within the framework of our culture, that's not uncommon. That they're the grounds for divorces, our marriage has gotten sour. It's, it's a, an agreeable thing. Uh, the majority of divorces today are based on common, dis, you know, common willingness to just dissolve the marriage and, and, and go each their own way by the contract through the judge or a mediator, divide up the, the, the resources and each go their own way. And whoever was looking for the better deal was, you know, goes for it and whatever else happens and it maybe happens again and again and again. California has the high rate of divorce, one of the highest in the nation. What is interesting is that our first time marriage divorces aren't much higher than anybody else's. It's our second, third, and fourth. <laughs> Habit, okay. And so, you know, this, this, this picture of just taking it lightly and, and, and it's kind of a general attitude. If it doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. That was even a common phrase that I heard even in the 70s. In fact, it was advice given to me by some people in my own family. If it doesn't work out, just on the day that I was to get married, uh, if it doesn't work out, you can always get a divorce. Now, this was coming from two divorced people. You know, uh, so, this is nothing new. Obviously, it's nothing new. Look at Solomon's talking about it. You know, adultery and, and sexual misconduct and immorality and, and, and all of these things. This is man in his fallen nature. I want what I want. That's it. As our kids are growing up, most of them, I want what I want. If someone else comes and takes my toy and plays with it and I was wanting to play with it, I want it back now. For that matter, even if I wasn't playing with it, I want it back now. Uh, we have, we, we, we still have that idea simply of, of just the fallen nature. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon within the framework of the church. So what is, you know, that's kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of a, of a worldview. Now, some people are going to say, well, not everybody is like that. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying a general sketch of the way marriage is held. And if you look at the laws of the land, it's what I've just shared with you is basically true. It's made in such a way you know, that it can happen very quickly, very easily. It's not difficult to do. Back when I was uh, conceived, you know, so back in the 40s, uh, to get a divorce took nothing less than a year in the state of California. What did people do? They went to Nevada. Because they could get a divorce in six weeks there. 
Well, now, and then it went to six days, and now it's, I don't know what it is, but in California, you know, it, it's, it's, the idea is, is that we, we want an out if it doesn't work. What a way to go into something. What a sad attitude to go into something that should be so important to us as marriage. But then I realized what gives it importance comes back to whether you're in the camp of wisdom or folly. Are you seeking the Lord or you don't care? If you're seeking the Lord, that's what puts value to this that the culture as a whole doesn't do. A Christian worldview, you know, uh, well, is there involved the idea of a legal contract? Yeah, there is. Uh, Paul makes it clear that we're, we're, if the law doesn't conflict with our faith and our actions and, and going, you know, we are obliged to abide by what the law says. And the law says that we need to get a marriage license. Needs to be done, you know, there's certain things we have to do, blood tests and different things that are required. And we do all of those things. And when we file at the, at the, the court when that, that's filed, they could care less whether it says Christian on it or not. It just goes into the, into the computer and, and, and is filed. Okay? So there is a state side to it. But for Christians, it should be more. And the more is the word covenant added to the picture. Legal contract? Yes. And more. A covenant. A covenant is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other as put forth in Scripture. It's a simple definition that a covenant that men use between each other from the Scripture point of view. A sacrificial commitment to the good of the other as put forth in Scripture. What a sacrificial. Meaning... One who puts the other ahead of themselves. And within the framework of the covenant, the covenant expresses the number one desire is to please and glorify God. So, as Christians, when we get married, the number one thing we want to do is to please and to glorify God. Do we want to, to have all the things of husband, wife, and get married and, 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 and all the things that go? Yes. But we want it to, to be seated in the idea of a relationship that will, for its lifespan, glorify God. How many of you have seen that elderly couple that you know, that you know, that you know, that their walk with the Lord has continued to grow and to grow and to grow? And you look at them. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't point at you. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and you look at them and you know, I'll, I'll pick on an, a couple that, that have, have since gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, and the uh, Nesmiths, Bill and Virginia. You, you knew that you knew that you knew there was something special about them. You just, the way they talked, the way they, they acted, just every time you were with them, apart or together, I remember uh, before uh, living up here permanently, but having come up and visited, I actually had gone fishing up here. Uh, and, and, uh, and then my friend, uh, who was a pastor at another church, invited us up and, and we went fishing. And I actually ended up meeting uh, Bill Nesmith at that point. 
And there's a lot of things that go on when you go fishing and hunting and different things like that with men that don't go on in the church, uh, you know, hallway. Not with Bill. Talked about his wife in such a way that you knew that he loved her. He lifted her up wherever he was. I never, I can't ever remember in all the the thirty plus years that I knew them that that uh, hearing him ever say something despairing about his wife. Ever. You know, he loved her. And, I, and, and the reason why that was such a way that he did is because he loved her in Christ. They had a covenant, a sacrificial relationship with each other that cared about the other more than themselves. Their number one desire to please and to glorify God. And so what we look at is, is uh, and one of uh, Tim Keller, some of you know him, and 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 uh, John Piper and others, they they all talk about it the same way. We have a horizontal relationship with God. You know, I mean a vertical relationship with God. Excuse me, <laughs> I'm going up and down. And it, there's a a, a a rule my my dad tried to correct, but it didn't succeed. Um, Watch where my hands go. That's what I mean. So if I say turn, if I say turn left and and I point right, we need to turn right. Okay. Uh, my dad tried to make me sit on my hands and be the passenger and navigate through town to get to a particular place, and we spent a lot of time. Finally, he gave up. Uh, but uh, you know, we have this 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 vertical relationship with God, and as that is established, the relationship we have with each other, the horizontal relationship becomes something that reflects this. Our words, the way we talk, the things we want to do, this type of thing. And I, and I just, I think again, it's that importance to understanding. The beginning of, of understanding, wisdom, knowledge, all of that comes with the idea of the fear of the Lord, in awe of who the Lord is. So we have this relationship going and it's, and it's tied together. Uh, and, and unlike, you know, because we come from a Western culture and our primary influence in our culture for the way we think and divide things up is Greek. It, you know, we like to parse everything down into its neat little spot and get it as narrow as we possibly can and look at it and say, oh, this. And we completely ignore what it's connected to. You know, and, and the Hebrew culture is a whole different way of looking at things. In the Hebrew culture, when it sees this, it all automatically puts it in the context of its whole. It never leaves the context of its whole. And so, uh, it's, you know, it's a, just a, a different way of thinking about things. Uh, so, as we look at a biblical marriage, a covenant, uh, they would look at it as, as both seeing the vertical and the horizontal as a, as a whole. And even though we're talking about one part of it, the automatic thing is, and it applies this way too. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be said. A biblical marriage covenant involving, and, and, and I thought it was interesting that this was put this way, involves three people in a marriage. Husband, wife, God. In a Christian wedding service, biblical covenant is established. We speak about the relationship. The Bible speaks about in the sense of, of with, with our relationship with God and with each other and how one 
allows the other to become a better and more possible uh, in the sense of being scriptural and biblical. One one, uh, commentator said, to break with our spouse is to break faith with God at the same time. In other words, if we uh, end up deciding that, oh, our marriage is, you know, is something that could be thrown away, uh, it's, it, it basically turns around and says, you know, it, you know, we're treating our relationship with God as, has a, a split in it as well. It's impacted. So what I was, what this one thing says, look at a Christian wedding service. And 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 I and I thought, well, I I I, I can do that. Uh, and and so I, you know, I, I this is probably one of the, you know, I, I do several of them, but I, and I'm not going to go into detail. But uh, you know, I, basically, when I get to the message, I I start my the message normally goes something like this: Marriage is as old as the family of man, instituted by God. When he said it is not good for man to dwell alone, so from the side of man God created a woman and presented her to him to be his wife. Uh, I, I, I know one pastor that we didn't insert there. Note from his side, not from foot or from brain, but you know, so one might rule over or tread over and all that kind of stuff, but from the side that they might what? Walk side by side, be connected that way. In, its, in God's Word, it's made clear that the two are to become one. It is written, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and stand with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Elsewhere in God's Word, it is written, what God has joined together, let no man divide. When we speak of marriage, we also think of love. From God's Word, we find three kinds of love. And I go on, it goes on and explains the, you know, the idea of, of a, a physical love, a friendship love, and an agape, God-centered love. The love that Paul speaks about when he's saying to love one another, to love your wife, or this type of thing, is the agape love. Uh, this third kind of love is spoken of in the Bible as God's love. This love is unconditional towards the one to which it is offered. And then I, from our reading today, 1 Corinthians 13. Slow to lose patience. It is kind. It looks for a way to be constructive. It's not self-important. It does not keep a list of wrong. I'm pausing on purpose. It does not keep a list of wrongs. How hard that is if you don't have the desire to know God and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. But if we know that, then automatically we want to apply that into our relationship with our spouse. It does not keep a list of wrongs. Okay. It does not gloat over the mistake of others. This unconditional love knows no limit to it. It endures no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. This love puts the other ahead of self, willing to sacrifice personal rights for the welfare of the other. A covenant. So, as you go through this, and now those are the things that you, you pick out of the Word of God to share with the, the ceremony. Then you might say... Uh, George and Georgette, uh, after hearing these thoughts from the Word of God, do you both pledge to face this future by each other's side, not as two, but as one, living your lives for each other? In other words, there's a vow, there's a, a, a promise that is made based on the Word of God. 
You won't find that in a secular marriage. You know, this is this is what what you do with a in a Christian marriage. A vow based on the word of God to each other and vertical as well. Yeah, it's it's tying it all together. Did I do it right? Okay. I know my hand went up and down. Uh and and so uh then and then the the vows themselves. Uh you know, to to speak about, you know, until death ultimately doeth part. The commitment to a covenant. And and so uh that would be somewhat of a typical wedding uh, service uh, for a Christian wedding. Uh, Tim Keller wrote, marriage was meant to be the deepest of human covenants. Of all the covenants that a man makes, it's, it's a, and somebody says, well, what about your salvation, your covenant with God? It's included. <laughs> it's part of it. <laughs> if it's not, then it's, it, it's not a Christian covenant to begin with. So, as far as our relationships and things on earth, a wedding is, is supposed to be that deep, serious commitment to a lifetime. Uh, one of my questions will be, do you picture yourselves, you know, in, in your senior years, you know, kind of the old picture of walking on the porch together and, and, and this type of thing? Uh, yeah, and, and the, you know, the answer is, is, is yes. If you, 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 this is a lifetime commitment. Huh? <laughs> We've arrived. <laughs> um, well, I'm, 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 well I, I, I just look, you know, I, it depends on who you're looking at. You know, Kathy and I have got, what, 49 years this year? So we're not, we're not amateurs, but we're still practicing all of this stuff. Um, Jesus' teachings in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 validated these same ideas. As he spoke about it, he quoted Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in reference to what it was to have a relationship. And what was happening was they were coming up to him and basically asking, him, what about divorce? You know, the, the, the teachers of the law and stuff like that. And, and divorce it depends on which, which group you were in, but the dominant group in, at the time in Jesus and, and the, the, large, the, the dominant political group at the time, divorce was extremely easy. All it required was a certificate from the man to be presented at the gate to the elders, and it was done. And the woman was out. And, uh, and it could be over literally anything. Somebody says, you know, uh, the first time I heard it was from a guy by the name of Reuben Ratzliff, and he presented it. It could be over something as simple as a burnt meal. I, I thought he was being, you know, Frivolous with it in the sense of just trying to make it sound, you know, give you an idea. And then I found out he was he was he wasn't joking. He was serious. You know, it could be something as simple as as being a poor cook. Um, so marriage had become very, for lack of better words, in what you would expect to have been a very religious culture, had been in a sense very secular, very unimportant. It was a matter of convenience, and 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 little more. And uh, uh, again, coming back to Tim Keller's remark, marriage was meant to be the deepest of human co- uh, uh, covenants. And that's what Jesus talks about when, when he gets into it. He's asked these questions. Yeah, Moses ended up allowing you to have divorce because you, couldn't, you just couldn't 
get your, your, your lives together to a point where you could be right with it. But he says that wasn't God's plan originally. And he goes back to Genesis and says, you know, the idea of marriage and, 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 and two becoming one in such a way that it's a lifetime commitment. That idea of two becoming one is an idea of more than just the sexual context that were complementary. But the two becoming one and completing each other in every capacity, spiritually and, and, and emotionally and, 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 and in, a, in, in a relationship where the husband actually is lifting the wife up. He's not dominating and ruling over her. And you know, people look at that and say, well, that wasn't the norm in the culture. No, it wasn't because of the fall, because of sin. So as Christians... What should be the example of, of, of our relationships, husbands and wives? It should be one that sets us apart. Ephesians gets into detail. and so Some people have a really rough time with uh, Ephesians because it says that the, the husband is, is to be uh, the leader of the home and, and, and that the wife is to respect him. But you, you catch this, men. You are to love your wives as what? Christ loved the church. Sacrificial. <laughs> It's, it's that covenant relationship that says, I want my wife to be blessed. I want her to experience everything there is to experience that I can possibly provide. So many people walk away from it with the idea that the wife is to submit. Period. But read verse 21 before you read verse 22. It says, submit one to another. Just to kind of a sum this up, marriage was intended to be permanent. I don't know what's in there that won't let me do that. Marriage was meant to be permanent, sacred, intimate. And when I say intimate, meaning the idea that we leave one family to establish a new family. Uh, one flesh, sexual, mental, spiritual. Uh, by the way, and this was covered last week, putting premarital sex outside of the picture of right. God intended sex to be ex- expressed only within the covenant of a relationship of a husband and a wife. And again, I felt BJ covered that well last week. And, and uh, you know... Uh, Premarital sex, I, I read one place, robs the marriage bed. Isn't that an interesting concept? Robs the marriage bed. It is sacrificial it, uh, in, in the sense of, of the husband or the wife, the spouse takes the I'm third position. God is first, my spouse is second, I'm third. In the sense of, 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 of the order of blessing. I want my, my spouse, and my, for me it would be wanting my wife to be blessed ahead of me. It's exclusive. So it's permanent, it's sacred, it's intimate, it's sacrificial, it's exclusive. Which means no one is to interfere with the commitment between a husband and a wife. What God has joined together, let no man divide.
coming coming back to 1 Corinthians 13, the kind of love that Paul speaks about is the kind of love that's supposed to dominant, be dominant within a marriage relationship. It's full of grace and forgiveness. Uh, again, this idea of, of having this vertical relationship and then horizontal relationship, John Piper had an interesting, he says, we are to live vertically in order to be able to bend outwardly. And I, I thought that was interesting because the, the idea that came to me with the picture of bend is, is that that's, it's something that's, in a sense, against my, my, my fleshly nature to bend, to share, to give. I, I want to what? Receive. And so, if my vertical relationship is in tune in the right way, it's so that I may bend outwardly. What a powerful little picture that was for me. That's the first time I'd ever heard it put quite that way. I, I, I emphasize that Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11 both speak to the fact that, that we're, when we're talking about husband-wife relationships, and especially if we get into Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about We're not talking about what's equal before the throne of God. We're just talking about the way God put things together in such a way as to this is the way it works best. But no one is ahead of anybody else before the throne of God. There is no sex before the throne of God. There is no no nation before the throne of God. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. You're familiar with the verses. We're all before the throne of God as equals. Uh, but as while we are here, yes, God has put an order to things. And I don't have time to get into detail this morning, but Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 talks about the order of things, that the, the husband is the, the head of the home. That's a very unpopular thing today. It wasn't unpopular a hundred years ago, but it's unpopular today. And, and because I think more than anything else, it's, it's because men have abused it. I've heard a number of people over the years say, if I got the, 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 the husband that loves the wife like Christ loved the church, I wouldn't have a problem. <laughs> so it's in our camp, guys, to, to initiate and to respond the way God wants us to. I just I'm going to close with this thought here. Uh, this one again coming from John Piper. Uh, Husbands and wives, drive into your own consciences these huge truths, greater than any problem in your marriage, that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Believe this with all your heart and bend it toward your spouse. So, again, that picture of bending, yielding, giving, sacrificing. You know, what God has done for you, let it change you so that you might bend towards the, the, the primary person in your life, your spouse, and others besides.
and take that I'm third position. God is first. The other person is second. I'm third. Let's have communion together. We see picture there of, of how Christ bend towards us and His love for us. I ask the ushers to come and to pass the emblems out. Hold them until we've all been served and we'll share together.